Loved ones, let's turn together in God's Word again, this time to Matthew 7. We pick up in this sermon series, in the Sermon on the Mount, and we welcome visitors both here and online. This is the greatest sermon, perhaps, that was ever preached, of course, by Jesus. The only sermon where the preacher himself should be the focus. Christ himself giving us, of course, this wonderful Sermon on the Mount. So he's on a mountain, kids. He's teaching his disciples, those whom he loves. He's teaching you today, you whom he loves. Hear now the Sermon of Jesus. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Your best friend is suddenly cool and distant. Your spouse can't stop complaining about you. Your son or daughter refuses to talk to you. What are you supposed to do? Well, as the ladies who are studying relationships, a mess worth making know in this really helpful book, there's three options that we often revert to. A, B, and C. Shut down, lash out, and get out. But plan D is something that often we don't realize. Recognize God has the last word on these messy, conflict-ridden relationships, that God does use them to make us into someone who can give and receive love with God and with each other. Loved ones, relationships are messy. They're hurtful. None of us has ever been in a relationship that hasn't disappointed us in some way because we're sinners. But God made us for community with God, first of all, to enjoy God, to love God, and with each other. We shouldn't run away from the messiness of community. We shouldn't try to avoid imperfect people because then there's no one left. We're on a desert island in and of ourselves, and then we're more deceived than ever before. We begin today in chapter 7, a new section in this wonderful sermon on the mount by Jesus. And we turn to one of the most misunderstood, misquoted, and misapplied verses in all the Bible. Judge not, lest you yourself be judged. The context is relationships. Jesus talking to his disciples, talking to them about how they live together as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Sermon on the Mount itself is pointing to Christ. It's reminding us of the kingdom of God. Christ has come. It's pointing us to Jesus, the perfect law keeper, 
the glorious Savior of sinners, and equipped by the Spirit, we are reminded first to judge not a warning. Sin in all of its various distortions manifests itself in so many different ways, doesn't it? Like the whack-a-mole game, it pops up here and it pops up there and it pops up everywhere out of our hearts. One of these pop-ups, so to speak, is the natural inclination we have toward mistaken, critical, negative judgments. And often we don't see it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Ken Sandy brings some of these out in some helpful articles. Look in the Bible to see this, and we begin to see it's all over the place. Old Testament, the Israelites conquered the promised land. You've got Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So kids, you've got a couple of your brothers and sisters over here, and you're hanging out with them. And they're going to the land God promised to build an altar to worship God by the Jordan River. But you have other brothers and sisters over here, and they hear about it. And they assume the worst, and they get their troops together to go battle against them. They're brothers. Fortunately, before the battle begins, Joshua 22, those who built the altar were able to explain the purpose of it and avoid bloodshed. David himself made critical mistaken judgments. He fled from Absalom, a man named Ziba, 2 Samuel 16 and 19, brings a critical report regarding Saul's son, Mephibosheth, saying that he had turned against King David. David didn't read the Proverbs that his son was later to write. That's meant to be a joke. Solomon wrote some of them, and Solomon was after David. Sorry, it didn't go well. Proverbs reminds us to hear both sides of the story before we jump on in. David didn't hear Mephibosheth's side. He passed judgment against this innocent man, turned his property over to a false witness. Or how about Eli in 1 Samuel? He sees Hannah praying in the temple. Her lips are moving, but making no sound. She's a drunk, he says. He harshly confronts her. Then he learns she was communing with the Lord. All over the Bible, critical, mistaken judgments. Judge not, Jesus says. He's against hypercritical, self-righteous, hypocritical, unloving judgments. Those four things, that's what he's talking about. He knows how easy it is for us to believe the worst about someone's motives or actions. There's an old word, we don't use it much, called censorious, meaning a fault finder, one man says, who is negative and destructive toward other people, who enjoys actively hunting out to find their failures, who puts the worst possible construction on their motives, who dumps ice water on their plans and ideas, and is ungenerous toward their mistakes and failings. That's the person Jesus is talking about. It's easy to see this around us, in the news, social media, trial by Twitter, dumping and assuming and slandering. In our schools, kids, as friends talk, supposed friends, about other people. In our homes, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, 
Jesus is talking about judging rashly, jumping in before you know the whole story. He's talking about judging a person we don't even know that we're just hearing about. The nitpicker. That's one person he's talking about here. Always looking for something they don't like. Always finding something to criticize and pick at and nip at and bite at. The scavenger. Kids, I want you to tell me what this animal is. They come out at night. They have what appears to be a mask on their face. And sometimes you find them scurrying up trees to get your food at the campsite or coming out of the gutter or the sewer on your road. What is that, kids? Everyone said a raccoon. (laughs) Of course, raccoons are scavengers. What's going on in your life, as Kevin DeYoung says? I want to go there, and on garbage day, I want to lift up the lid, and I want to start to inspect what's inside. And I'm going to pick at it, and I'm going to grab that piece, and I'm going to look at that piece, and I'm going to examine this piece, and we all love to be scavengers. If someone at church seems unfriendly, she must be proud or aloof. We can assume that. Could it be she feels awkward? Unsure of herself? Is hoping someone will reach out to her? One of the most prominent characteristics of the critical fault finder is they focus predictably on things that are of little importance and they blow them way up. Secondary issues. Romans 14. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Or why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on each other any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. In matters the word of God is clear about, we are to obey accordingly. But in matters the scriptures don't address, we have liberty of conscience and we're to exercise wisdom. Jesus is saying, don't judge anyone according to your standards of your preferences and your opinions and your self-righteousness. In our evaluation, we always evaluate in light of God's authority. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is saying. Christ has authority that no one else has. He is God in the flesh. Jesus gives another illustration, verse 3. Don't you love this? It's meant to make us laugh. So here's a person that is looking around to see what's wrong in someone else's life. And they see a speck over there. Now, probably not a speck of dust. This is probably talking about a splinter or maybe a piece of straw, something small. But if something's in your eye, kids, even if it's small, you just got to get it out. You can't stop thinking about it because the eye is such a sensitive part of the body. This person sees the speck, and as he does, he slams into everyone along the way with a pillar from this building. Imagine a pillar that went to the top, that big. That might be a bit of an exaggeration. But he's bumping into everyone, and he's focusing on the speck, and we're supposed to laugh because it's ridiculous. Because that's what it looks like to God when we're going around looking at these specks with a pillar coming out of our head. 
the hypercritic is very perceptive. He notices all these specks. He's also pompous, arrogant, and blind. He skewers others, but he can't seem to notice what's sticking out of his eye. He's busy and lazy at the same time. That's what the sluggard is. Busy in finding the failures of others. Lazy in not facing his own sin. His own house is a mess. His priorities are skewed. He gives energy and time way over to these small things. But he completely ignores the real problems in his life. To him, the specks are logs. The logs are specks. There's an unreality about him. One person says, in his own world, it seems consistent. But when you step out of his world, you see that he is self-deceived. He's a hypocrite, Jesus says, verse 5. A phony. He's playing a part in a play, and it's all fake. Sinclair Ferguson. The spirit begins as this hypercritical censoriousness. His sin has conquered him, but he's blind to it. And then he begins to be very defensive about it. So if someone brings it up to him, he pounces on them, or he changes the subject. And he's so blinded that he reaches the place where he's acting apart to hide from others, to hide from himself the real nature of his own sin and guilt. By now, he has confused acting with reality, Ferguson says. He's deluded into thinking that he has become what he once knew he could only pretend to be, which is what? Better than others. That's what he's after. There's a symptom of this spirit of hypercritical judgment. Someone hears about something that's wrong. And yes, it's wrong. But they fly into a rage against it. It's sudden. It's an outburst of emotion. And it can be a sign that this is a personal issue, not a moral issue according to God's law. When someone is hypercritical of others, it's often a cover for something in their own life. They're not facing up to it. Does the Bible speak of that? King David? Adultery with Bathsheba? Murder of Uriah? And in God's kindness, Nathan the prophet comes. David, there's a rich man. He's got flocks of sheep. And there's a poor man with one little lamb. It's like his daughter, that little lamb. He loves it. The rich man doesn't want to take one of his own lambs to feed the guest at his house. So he goes and slaughters the little lamb of the, rich, of, the, of the poor man. David, here's Nathan. He says, months after his adultery, that man deserves to die. He must repay everything fourfold. Nathan points a finger at the king. David, you are the man. The censorious speck hunter makes a real mess of relationships. 
Have you ever been helped by what C.S. Lewis calls an omnipotent moral busybody? (laughs) Have you ever grown to love Jesus more because some person came to you and told you everything that was wrong with you? And they told you what you needed to do to fix it. And they, piling on and on and on. They may be right about some of those things, but has that ever helped? A warning against meddling in other people's minor faults and exaggerating them while failing to deal with our own sins. Here's Lewis again. An essay he wrote called The Problem with X, the letter X. Have you ever been in a conversation, I bet you and I were maybe very recently, this week, kids or someone at school, where there's a group of people and they're all talking about someone. And they all agree that this is the problem with this schoolmate, this teacher, this parent, this person at church, this neighbor. We all know this is the problem with X. And they all have a great time agreeing, yeah, this is the problem with X. Lewis said, you do know that in someone else's conversation, you are X. Whether it's real or not, you are the problem, he's saying. It's the fastest way to make a friend. Agree on someone else's failings. And people just gather around. Jonathan Edwards says it's like we're feeding as a vulture on squirrels on the side of the road. We're taking bad reports. They're critical. We're passing them on. We're treating people harshly. We're grieving the Spirit of God. It's contagious. It's like spiritual cholesterol slowing the flow of grace in our hearts. It leads to spiritual heart attacks, crippling relationships. It undermines the unity of the church, sapping the church of the spiritual resources, sapping a school of joyful teaching and energy, diminishing the witness of the gospel that we have. When people see Christians going at it, they think, I don't want that. That's worse. I've, heard, I've talked to people who are in the business world. They say sometimes churches treat each other way worse than unbelievers. It can be a Christian school. It can be a Christian sibling relationship. Do we judge others for small faults and allow great ones in ourselves? What's the root of these things? In our Sunday school, we're talking about the heat, the trials of life, the afflictions of life, the pressures of life, are thorns. So a thorn would be the critical judgment. I am coming at someone in this hypocritical way. What's the root? There's a lot of them, Ken Sandy says, and it's going to be different in different people. For some, it's selfishness. This person stands in my way. I want to remove them. Pride. I'm right. They're wrong. I'm going to criticize. When we do that, we imitate Satan by trying to play God. Self-righteousness, the blindness of it. Insecurity, the fear of man. 
Have you ever noticed, Paulison says, that people who feel lousy about themselves are still judgmental to others? They don't love them. They don't show mercy to them. They grumble and they criticize. So self-pity, self-hatred, timidity, a fear of people is another form of pride. Expressing pride failing and pride despairing. The ultimate root of critical judgments is a lack of love. When love is deficient, critical judgments will fly. And what often happens in relationships is people disagree, they suspect each other, they become harsh, and critical spirits begin to just reproduce. To be hypercritical is to show no grace, no forgiveness, no love. The person on the speck hunt has not experienced the love of God in their heart in a real life-changing, personal way. There's a story told about two men in the woods. A bear shows up. One man begins to tie his shoes. The other man says, what are you doing? Don't tie your shoes. You've got to run. You've got to outrun the bear. You don't have time to tie your shoes. The guy says, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. Many of you, the law of God like this. If I can outrun my neighbor, I'm good. If I can outpace this person and do better, I'm fine. Not realizing the wrath of God is coming, that all of us will be judged by God one day. The warning Jesus gives here is that you who love to be critical, remember, there will be a day when God will be critical and his judgment will come down. We read it in Hebrews 10, 12 this morning. Romans 2, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Oh, God, have mercy. Pastors can be the worst at this. Second, the call to wise discernment. Jesus here is not saying all judgment is forbidden. This passage is not saying be a coward. The coward says, who am I to judge? He's not saying that you should never have discerning evaluation. When it comes to the court of law, justice needs to be done. If a police officer pulls us over, Kids, maybe you've seen mom and dad get pulled over. I hope mom and dad haven't said, officer, don't judge me. Because he would say, I don't judge you. I enforce the law. You were going 55 in a 30. You get a ticket. Jesus is not saying, don't make judgments between right and wrong. Kids, your parents love you. That's why they don't want you staying up till midnight, eating a whole bowl of ice cream, and watching a show that will keep your head just spinning. That's why they talk to you about the clothes you wear and the food you eat and the friends you hang out with. They love you. Teachers make judgments and grades for you, kids, right? Managers make judgments with their employees. Elders need wisdom and spiritual discipline. In judgments in the church. Daily life, you hear the news. We want to be wise, discerning Christians. We have to think about this in a way that reflects the mind of Christ. We discern between good and evil, truth and error, foolishness and 
wisdom. So as R.C. Sproul says, we are to make the wise judgment of discernment. What Jesus is after is judgmentalism. Condemning someone to hell. Treating them as if they are the worst of all sinners. And as if I'm perfectly pure. Jesus never applauds niceness. He never says peace at any costs. No indulgence. No false tolerance. He'll talk of Herod as a fox. Of the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. And even in verse 6, do you see this? He talks about dogs and pigs. What's he doing here? Dogs. Kids, when he is criticizing dogs, he's not mad at Luna, your brand new puppy. He's not going after a golden retriever. Dogs in that world were not pets. They were wild scavengers, like a raccoon digging in the trash. They were coyote-like, filthy creatures. They're dirty. They're nasty. In the New Testament, for the Jews, a dog was a metaphor for someone who didn't keep the dietary laws of Israel. Jesus is not throwing out a slanderous phrase. He's using this spiritually. What's he getting at? Well, what's a pig? Pigs, meaning the dirty animals, the unclean, according to the book of Leviticus, animals. Second Peter, the dog returns to its vomit. The pig returns to wallow in the mire. Jesus is saying the judgmental hypocrite is a dog and a pig in this sense. They are evildoers. Paul talks of dogs in Philippians 3. He refers to them as false teachers who are smuggling in the self-righteousness of the Pharisee, saying it's Christ plus what you do. Not Christ alone, not grace alone, not the merit of Jesus, but Grace plus your obedience. You're not saved by a resting faith that trusts in all that Jesus is for you, but you have to do enough to keep yourself saved. He's going after those false teachers, and they're still around today. Defining faith as faithfulness when it comes to the receiving act of justification, receiving all that Christ is for us. These are dogs. These are evildoers. These are mutilators of the flesh, Paul says. They are Judaizers. In Paul's day, they're like a pack of wolves traveling from the council at Jerusalem in Acts to Philippi, to the churches all around. And the ironic thing is, Judaizers were Jewish people who claimed to be believers, and Paul is calling them the dogs. See the irony? Beware of false teachers. Beware of those who are wolves, but they look like sheep. Don't give them what's holy. Don't throw your pearls before them, meaning the gospel, the precious blood of Jesus, Jesus who is the pearl of great price. Don't throw pearls to pigs because they're going to maybe think that those, pig, those pearls are nuts and fruit and try to eat them, kids. There's a picture here. And they're going to spit them out because a pearl doesn't taste good. And they're going to trample on them. What's Jesus saying? He's not saying don't share the gospel with unbelievers. He's not saying you've got to pick and choose who you want 
to love and tell about Jesus. No. He's speaking of dogs and pigs who are warped, self-condemned, have rejected the gospel with a hardened contempt, a vicious scorn, vehemently, over and over again. Thus the Judaizers. The self-righteous, hypocritical. That's who he's talking of. Don't continue to bring them the gospel. They're going to trample it. They're going to bite you for it. They're going to reject it. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus also says, you and I are not in the place of God to make final judgments on people. That's important. So as you discern, we understand all of us will one day stand before God as our judge. God is our king. He's our father by faith in Christ. He is our judge. He's opposed to the self-righteous hypocrite. And loved ones, if you're in Christ, you don't need to fear God as judge. But if there are any here who are not in Christ, you are under the judgment of God. The word of God says, repent and believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Otherwise, you are a breath away from standing before a holy God who is a judge, who demands a perfect righteousness as good as his own, to whom we must give account. We will all stand before God. Jesus sees us as we really are. So we will either stand before God naked, trusting in ourselves, or, here's the good news, Jesus sees your speck and mine, your log and mine, All of it. His vision is clear, like Revelation says. He looks into the church with laser eyes. He knows the sins we're struggling with. So how does the law get removed? Moralism? Trying harder? Willpower? Shaming ourselves? No, those are opposed to the gospel. If that's what did it, Christ didn't need to die. But he sees what's in your eye and he can get it out. Jesus never judged anyone in a sinful way. He's not a hypocrite. He's sinless and spotless and undefiled. He's the one with whom the Father is well pleased. But he submitted to the holy judgment of the Father. He was judged for us. He took our curse, our sin, our critical nature, He says, I took that on myself. I have given you my love and mercy. Your sins are imputed to me. My righteousness is imputed to you. That's how you're freed from the log. The Spirit comes. And if you're in Christ, you're abiding in him. You're assured of God's love. And he washes you. Ephesians 5. He cleanses you by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. By his kindness, we repent of our judgmental, harsh, critical spirit. How many of us went this week with perfect, sinless judgments? We repent of it. And we identify, where is my pride? And where is that happening in my heart? And by the grace of God, I pray that my self-righteousness will be replaced by the Spirit with a dependence on Christ's righteousness. Where I fear man, God, kill that in me. Help me to have godly confidence in Jesus. 
where I'm dealing with self-pity. Give me a godly contentment in the gospel. We examine our hearts. We don't ignore or deny the specks or the logs that we're dealing with. We realize, you know what, there's times when maybe I'm acting like a dog. When I'm so cold and hard that people around me don't think they can ever say anything to me. That they walk on pins and needles. God, give me grace to receive their counsel and advice and correction and rebuke and wisdom. Instead of judging others critically, God says, judge charitably, lovingly. The eye is so sensitive. If you have a tiny speck of dust in there, kids, you want to get it out, or a a gnat, right in the summer, the gnats go in there. And you go to mom and dad, and you open up your eye, and you say, get it out, and mom and dad don't shove their whole fist in there. (laughs) The eye is so sensitive. They gently clean it out. In the spiritual realm, we're handling a soul. We need to be humble and sympathetic, aware of our own sins whenever we come to talk to someone else. Measuring them the way we want to be measured, Matthew 7, 2. The gospel changes our hearts and enables us to bear with the faults of each other. Not to be complacent, not to ignore them, not to be cowardly but to realize this is a brother or sister who has the same spirit that I do, and I don't have to go around telling them all the time what's wrong with them. Kids in your home, husbands and wives, friends, church members, coworkers. It's the easiest thing to do in the world to go around and tell people what's wrong with them. But we can't fix it. The Holy Spirit does. We don't want to twist their words like the ninth commandment says. We want to evaluate in that spirit of love. Meaning, there might be issues. We've got to talk about them. We don't ignore them. We don't trust someone blindly who's not worthy of trust. We don't just say, okay, I'm trusting you. We don't put a child molester in the nursery and say, oh, we're trusting you. Wise discernment, charitable judgment, good discussion, good debate, good questioning among elders and pastors and deacons and friends in Sunday schools. This is healthy, candid conversations. That's how we help each other. Do not rebuke a mocker. He'll hate you. Rebuke a wise man. He'll love you. Proverbs 9, verse 8. Yes, think critically. Assess, evaluate, speak the truth in love, knowing that whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. It's a great mercy to know people who deal gently with your ignorance and waywardness, isn't it? Praise God for them. They know their own weakness. They know their own sinfulness. And they know the mercies of Jesus. What a blessing it is, Emmaus Road, when we comfort each other in our afflictions because God is bringing comfort to us in our afflictions. The joy of friendship. Frodo said, it doesn't seem that I can trust anyone. It all depends on what you mean, said Mary. 
the hobbit. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you yourself keep it. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone or to go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid. But we are coming with you, Frodo, or following you like hounds. Family of God, may God give us persevering, enduring, grace-filled, patient, loving friendships and relationships together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your grace, rooted and grounded in the love that you have for us in Christ, we can grow in this love that is patient and kind, that does not envy and does not boast, that is not rude, that is not self-seeking, that is not easily angered. Lord, produce this in us. Help us to keep no record of wrongs. Help us together in relationships to not delight in evil, but rejoice with the truth to hope, to persevere, and to press on together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.